0: If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5, read two short passages, scripture. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament, if you're, it's been a while since you've taken a spin in the Bible, just kind of turn about three quarters of the way to your right and Matthew's right there. Perhaps one of Jesus's most well-known, well-beloved, but most uh, misinterpreted teachings, the Sermon on the Mount. Even if you're not a Christian, you're probably familiar with this. Maybe you learned about this in a literature class and works of great art or works of great literature. You heard about the Sermon on the Mount. But here are these words Matthew chapter 5. I just want to read verse 9, and then we're going to skip over. If you want to put, a, put your finger there and, and then go over to Matthew 10 and put your finger there, we're going to read in both of those uh, sections. Jesus says this Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring, bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love how confusing Jesus is. Be a peacemaker. I've not come to bring peace. This tension is really actually what it means to be a peacemaker. If you'll recall, we are actually wrapping up a series right now, and uh, we, we've called the series Emotional Healthy Relationships, and And it's based loosely around some ideas, Uh, we're coming out of the Bible, but loosely around some ideas, the framing of this, from a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro, pastor in New York City. And here's what he says in his book, um, emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so we've been talking about what does it look like for us to learn the skills of loving well, showing up well in our relationships, as those who've been loved by God, Paul says, you can be the most gifted, talented, competent, well-educated person in the world, but if you don't have love, he says, you're nothing. And so we're we're learning some new skills because the reality is we don't show up well often in our relationships. We don't love as well as we think we do. And so we have to unlearn some skills and relearn some new skills, some new practices and habits and, and ways of being in the world that lead us towards a life of resilient love. Today's skill, um, what I want to talk about just for our time today, is um, stewarding conflict like a peacemaker. Stewarding conflict like a peacemaker. Here's kind of the big idea for our message, if you're taking notes. A core discipleship issue for all followers of Jesus in the new family of Jesus is to learn how to show up well for conflict. A core discipleship skill is learning how to show up well for conflict. Now, if you uh, were here a couple of years ago, you know we taught through, for actually almost a year, the Sermon on the Mount. We spent a lot of time in this text, working verse by verse through chapters 5 through 7. So I'm not going to review a lot. There's a lot that I would love to say about peacemaking and about the Sermon on the Mount. It is such a beautiful imitation to a countercultural way of life. This is a life that we long for. This is the world we all long for. And even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, I I suspect there's a part of you that's like, yeah, I at least want that to be true. I wish that was true. And Jesus lays out for us, this is a quick recap, Jesus the King, goes up onto a mountain as the second Moses. As Moses went up on a mountain, Jesus goes up on a mountain. Not to deliver the law, but to deliver a message of grace, to deliver what you could call his inauguration address. A king bringing a new kingdom, a new government, a new administration into the world, one of resilient love. The idea of kingdom is, is, he's talking here about a a concept that was richly um, in, in the imagination of a Jewish person. He's drawing on a deep well of imagination here, but the word kingdom just simply means the reign and the rule of God. Jesus has come to bring the reign and the rule of God to earth, to put flesh on it, to show us what it looks like to live as a people of love. And so what he lays out here in the Sermon on the Mount, in these, two, uh, these three chapters, is essentially his charter for how his children are to live if they're going to bear his resemblance. That's the idea. here. You, you, if you're a peacemaker, you're a son of God. In other words, you look like your father in heaven. You show the world what it looks like. You're reflecting and representing God on the earth. And so he, he lays out this series of blessings. This word, uh, blessed are you, he says over and over and over again. It's the word makarios in the Greek. And it's not like we use the word blessing. We've talked about this. We like we the word blessing. We hashtag it, hashtag blessed, hashtag double blessed. But usually that, by that we mean privilege or wealth or status, the good life, free of any discomfort or suffering, that's not what Jesus means here by blessed are you. That word blessed means happy are you, fortunate are you. Flourishing would be a good translation of this word. Flourishing are you if God favors you. And God enables you by his grace to so trust in Jesus as your king and give him your greatest loyalty that you become the kind of person who can live this way. So it's, it's grace to you. And then out of the grace that we've experienced in our relationship with the Father through Jesus by the power of the Spirit, now we're invited to live a certain kind of way. It's not do these things so you can have a relationship with God. It's, hey, God's already favored you. Jesus comes to announce God's favor to you. And since you are favored, live this way. It's a new way of being human in the world, you could say. It's a new operating system for life. Jesus here is talking about conversion, The conversion of the soul, the conversion of our bodies, the conversion of our minds, the conversion of our feelings, the conversion of our relationships, the reorientation of life. And so he lays out this series, and you can see this thing build. It builds on each other. The internal structure of it starts with kind of our inner world and then works its way out into our relationships. And that's important because you've got to have all of these things together if you're going to have any of them in isolation. And it all culminates in verses 9 and 10. So notice the the building momentum um, blessed are those who know their poverty, who know the poverty of their soul, who know, uh, in some cases, in this context, actual poverty. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, that work could be righteousness or justice. It's the same word in the Greek. Jesus says, as you begin to know these things, then it begins to impact your relationships with others. In verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. One commentator says that you could actually translate this, blessed are the whole makers, the circle makers, who round off the rough edges of society and relationships. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, blessed are you who are persecuted, no accident that being a peacemaker in the world is hard work and it actually will lead oftentimes to persecution. So don't think that things have gone wrong if you get persecuted for trying to be a peacemaker. Where peacemakers are present, the kingdom of God is made manifest in the world. Where we, we manifest peacemaking, the presence and the power of God is made known to the world. And this is important. Jesus is saying this in a context that knew so much conflict. Jesus is not uh, naive about conflict. He shows up in a world, I mean, he's, he's speaking these words to a group of people who in the backdrop of this, socio-politically, we know that Rome is there as an occupying force oppressing these people. So he shows up in the midst of sociopolitical nationalism, imperialism, state-sponsored violence against ethnic groups and against the poor, specifically the Jewish people. Economic exploitation and extremely high, you could say top marginal tax rates, but let's call it what it is, thievery. Jesus knows conflict. There's conflict in this social architecture. There's hostility. There's religious hostility. Jesus fights with the religious leaders. There's political, economic, social, relational, and spiritual conflict. Don't don't miss the spiritual conflict. In Matthew chapter 4, right before this, we see the enemy at work. We see Satan in chapters 3 and 4 at work animating all of this hostility and violence. Like Jesus' time, we too live in a world full of hostility. <laughs> That's the understatement of 2020 and 2021. Full of conflict. We desperately need peacemakers. Now, I, I thought this morning about going and like cataloging all of the uh, conflict in our world right now. Like I could do that. I could just go and like make a list and we could talk globally the wars that are happening. We could talk about genocide. We could talk about political violence that's happening around the world and in our own country. We could talk about racism. We could talk about classism. There's a really fascinating though one, um, that, I re- that I found that I wanted to spend a lot of time, we just don't have time, about the rise in family estrangement. There's a really good article in The Atlantic about this, as values shift generationally. More than, this, and this is a couple of years ago. This, this research is a couple of years old. I, I wonder if it's not double or triple this now. Just a couple of years ago, um, researchers are finding that about 11% of children, adult children, are estranged from their parents. 60% of, adu- of parents report contact of less than once a month with their adult children. Most of that, they say, is actually initiated by children. Pulling away from what they perceive to be toxic relationships with their, parent, with, with their parents. See, differences in opinion, difference in convictions, difference in how we approach life, how generations even approach life, becomes division. And so rather than doing all the cataloging, I just want to make it personal for a second. Like we all have people I know right now that we're in conflict with. And so what I want you to do is resist the urge to think of this message as for them. And I want you to think of this message, thank you, Lo. Think of this message as for you. And I want you right now just to close your eyes for about 30 seconds. And I want you to conjure up the image of this person in your mind a person that you are at conflict with. You're not seeing eye to eye. And it's a spectrum, it could be a small thing or it could be a life changing thing. Do you have them in your mind? Maybe they live with you, maybe they're not even alive anymore. Okay, now open your eyes. Now, with that, with those emotions in your gut, with that person's face seared in your memory, hear these words from Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton, Thomas Merton, Trappist monk. He says, hell is where no one has anything in common with anybody else except the fact that they all hate one another and cannot get away from one another and from themselves, Feels a little bit like what it's like to be an American right now. Hatred, hostility, violence, negative partisanship. Now, this is not new. Conflict's not new. We're not the first society in history to experience it, right? Even in the Bible, we see conflict. All over the place. Where does conflict come from? I just want to throw this slide up. We don't have a ton of time in this section because I want to get on and talk about what do we do about it. But I just want to throw this up just so we know like some of the roots of conflict. Like not all conflict, again, is bad. Conflict can be benign. It can be neutral. It's natural. It's inevitable, right? Differences in background. We talked last week about differentiation and about different approaches to life that we have. Differences in our backgrounds, our values, our goals, our gifts, our callings, our convictions mean that sometimes we're gonna see the world differently. And so in some ways, conflict is an opportunity to negotiate our differences. You see that in Acts 15, we see that in 1 Corinthians 12. Unity does not mean uniformity, that's false unity. False uniformity requires you to be like me. Real unity says no, we can actually be different without being divided. Sometimes we have misunderstandings resulting from poor communication. Right, We're flawed. We have a filter that we hear reality through, and that's how we end up with my reality and your reality. You interpret the world a certain way, and the way that you listen to the world is selective. You pick up on certain things, and you tune out certain things, and I pick up on certain things, and I tune out on different things. So sometimes it's poor communication. Sometimes it's competition over limited resources. We live in a finite world with limited resources. Not everyone can have the same stuff. The one we most commonly think about is dangerous, but it's also an opportunity to grow. Sinful self-preoccupation and ambition that privileges our own desires and devalues the personhood and desires of others. In other words, just our selfishness. James chapter four. Why are there quarrels and fights among you? Because you have selfish ambition. You have disordered desires that get normalized in a sinful society. And you fight and you war. I have four kids. This is like every day as a dad. And we might laugh about that, but like the reality is that's actually like, we never outgrow that. We just learn to mask it better. We learn to hide it better. But really, like in the church, in our relationships in the world, we're still like five, six, seven, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds doing life. And isn't it amazing like how quickly you can go to the 12-year-old version of yourself when somebody attacks you? So this is nothing new. And the problem is, though, is that you've been discipled to react to conflict in a very specific way. And I say that word, discipled. You've been discipled, you've been taught, you've learned. And that way of doing it seems normal to you. This is just how people conflict. Now, the problem with that is it's often unconscious. Nobody sat you down as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old and said, okay, like your parents are fighting, and then they're done okay. Now, here's how you do conflict. This is what conflict resolution looks like. No, you just watch everything explode, and then you have to make sense of reality and try to figure it out on your own for most of us. Maybe some of you had great parents that did that for you. Most of us, we had to learn it on our own. Matter of fact, the skills that we learn that are often unconscious that were implicit in our families of origin, these skills we learn in our families keep us locked in conflict, not working through conflict. They often lead to more violence, not less, more bitterness, not less, more unforgiveness, not less, less reconciliation. A couple different ways um, that we can, um, that this happens in our families. There's two kind of alternatives to peacemaking that I see predominantly. One is uh, what we just call false peace. So these are things that we learned growing up. Instead of peacemaking, here's, here's how the world does peace. Here's how we do peace in our flesh, false peace. These are the, blessed are the peace fakers. This is a lot of people in church. We, we fake peace. We avoid, this is, this is an avoidance posture. The mantra for a peace faker is peace at all costs. We wanna be nice. Good Christians don't fight. They should be nice to each other. Conflict for you is death. You would, you would rather die than get into an argument or a conflict with somebody. And I talk to Christians every week who were taught this growing up. Some different examples of what that looks like in terms of maybe what you learned growing up denial, silent treatment. That's not making peace, that's just being quiet. And silence often leads to long term violence. Condescension, contempt, walking away, running away, avoiding, passive-aggressive behavior, lying. Reaction formation is one I see a lot in the church. It's a psychological word that just means you do the opposite of what you actually feel. You feel mad inside, and the madder you feel, the more the smile gets plastered on your face, even though internally you're seething with anger. Minimizing, ghosting, cutting off, changing churches, changing families, changing cities, This is like the millennial mantra, right? If I can't do it here, I'll go somewhere else. But what you learn after changing cities and changing churches and communities so many times is wherever you go, as they say in recovery, there you are. You take you with you. And so therefore, conflict comes with you. So some of us, we engage in false peace. Jeremiah 6, this was one of the primary issues that the prophet Jeremiah had with the false prophets. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, peace when there is no peace. And that's why Jesus, this is the tension that Jesus is walking us into in Matthew chapter 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, but true peace means that we have to disrupt false peace. That's essentially what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 10. I've come to bring a sword. When you give your greatest allegiance and loyalty to me, it will create in the short term the disruption of peace. But in the long run, it's the disruption of false peace that leads to true peace. There can be no true true peace without acknowledging the false peace. So for some of us, this is our reality. This is what we grew up with. We have to learn, unlearn that, and learn a different way. For others of us, the other alternative, I think you know, is force peace. This is peace-breaking. Blessed are the peace-breakers. This, this is kind of a, an attack posture. For some of you... Conflict is not death, it's intimacy. You love to fight. You love a good conflict. You feel close to somebody. Matter of fact, when somebody doesn't fight with you, you're like, what's wrong with our relationship? Conflict's intimacy, because it's like, I know you. I wanna see you. I, wanna, I want you to see me. We like that pressure that conflict brings. Some examples of this would be up here on the screen, lecturing. It could be verbal. Assault, verbal attacking, threatening, harassing, gaslighting. Where I essentially blame you and, and create conditions for you to respond and attack me. Criticizing, sarcasm, blaming, shaming, shouting, raging, abusing, manipulating, litigating, murdering. I mean, in some ways, the church, this is, this is our reality too. For some of us, we look at peacemaking as weak. It's weak. Peacemaking is for losers. Peacemaking is for the naive. Peacemaking is for the utopian, radical, you know, whatever. Peacemaking is unpatriotic. Peacemaking is disloyal. Violence is the way. Violence gets things done. Coercion gets things done. Fighting gets things done. Psalmist says in one twenty. Verses 6 to 7, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Some of us know what it's like to grow up in a family like that. I am for peace, but they are for war. To grow up in a church like that. To live with a spouse like that. To have children and grandchildren like that. To live in a community like that. And so we must resist these ways of being in the world. False peace or forced peace is not of the kingdom of God. Jesus invites us to a different way. He's the ultimate example here of what it means to be a peacemaker. Isaiah calls him the prince of peace. He is the prince of peace and he comes to bring peace. He teaches and he demonstrates with his life that we can't avoid our way into true peace. We can't attack our way into true peace. Peace for Jesus came through a certain way of being in the world. A way that involved truth, a way that involved compassion, a way that involved justice, a way that involved ultimately sacrifice, laying down his own body to make peace. We have to, as Jesus' disciples, commit ourselves to his way, commit ourselves to learning what it looks like to make peace, to recognize all the ways we try to make false peace, and it doesn't work. And yet we get, we wonder we go around this cul-de-sac of stupidity, right? It's been called, like, it, you know, like, we go around and we're like, what's going on? And we fake and we false peace and we force peace and we're like, why are all my relationships blowing up? And it's like, you're not, like, Jesus stands over Jerusalem and he weeps. If only you knew for what made for peace. He waits for us to learn peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Notice Jesus doesn't say, blessed are the peace hopers. Blessed are the peace dreamers. Blessed are the peace lovers. Blessed are the peace bloggers and tweeters and Instagrammers. What's he say? Blessed are the peacemakers. Peace has to be made. A peacemaker, give you a definition, is someone who actively seeks to reconcile people to God and to one another. What is peace? For making peace, what is peace? Peace is shalom. It's this rich Hebrew word, shalom. Nicholas Wolterstoff, one commentator, says this: Shalom is the human being dwelling at peace in all his or her relationships. But the peace which is shalom is not merely the absence of hostility, not merely being in right relationship, shalom at its highest is enjoyment in one's relationships. He goes on to say that's why there can be no peace without justice. I was reflecting on Martin Luther King's uh, letter from a Birmingham jail this week as we celebrate this national holiday. We read it in our family with our kids, read it as a staff. And I was struck again in that letter which was written in response to a group of white clergymen who are calling for Dr. King to stop nonviolent protests? We need order, they said. We don't need conflict. And Dr. King talks in this letter about what he calls constructive, nonviolent tension that is necessary for growth. And he contrasts negative peace, the absence of hostility, with positive peace which he says is the presence of, essentially the presence of God. It's the presence of justice. It's the presence of truth. But he says in order to get to that, we've got to engage in tension, this creative, constructive tension. And what I took from that, again, was just this reminder that sometimes becoming a peacemaker means we have to change our perspective on conflict. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is necessary, it's normal, it's important. If relationships are gonna enter their next level of growth and maturity, Conflict is an invitation to shalom, true shalom. That's why the Jews, when they would greet one another, would say, shalom. When they left one another, shalom. Peace to you, wholeness to you, flourishing to you. Conflict, every time we experience conflict, it is a discipleship moment. It's an opportunity for us to grow, to learn to be more like Jesus, to demonstrate the presence and the power of God in the world. Now the question is, how do we become peacemakers? What does it look like for us to actually do that? Because I think we have a lot of idealism around that. We 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 would all say, "Yeah, like I want to be a person of peace." Or so you think you are a person of peace? But what does it look like to actually become a peacemaker? Let me just talk through um, how we engage in conflict for a few minutes, and we'll wrap up. Becoming a peacemaker is first and foremost about our presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, Our presence. When I say presence, I mean what kind of person are you becoming? What internal work needs to be done so that you can show up with peaceful presence? I could get up here and I could, I could teach you a seminar. Many of you have been to him on peacemaking. Here's all the skills, here's all the habits. But what I found is 80% of the work of peacemaking and conflict resolution is internal and it's vertical, not horizontal, first and foremost. 80% of the work is the turmoil and the conflict within us that has to be dealt with first. And that's why we must experience peace with God before we can have peace with one another. One of the biggest barriers, peace on the inside, peace with God. One of the biggest barriers to becoming a peacemaker is that we are not at peace inside of ourselves. We are not at peace with God. We are not at peace with our own spirit, our own soul, our own heart. And if we don't have peace internally with God, what happens is we project our pain, we project our guilt, we project our shame, we project our fear, our hostility, our inner chaos and tension onto the world. And oftentimes what we hate and fear, because First John says, what's at the root of a lot of conflict is fear. Perfect love casts out fear, but we live with fear and we live with hostility and hatred. What we often hate and fear in others is ironically what we hate and fear inside of ourselves. I don't like hypocrisy in you because I see it in myself. I don't like injustice in you because I know it lives in me. And you remind me of that every time I see it. And what can happen is if we don't allow that to be transformed, we end up transmitting to others what's inside of us. We end up mirroring back to others the very hatred and injustice and condemnation that we're trying to call out in the first place. And I see this so much in peacemaking and justice movements where the peacemakers are the angry, violent ones. Christians are the angry, violent ones. And rather than being people of peace, we end up returning somebody throws a cotton ball at us and we throw a brick back and we end up becoming the very thing that we say we're against we must hate these things in ourselves this inner like conflict and hatred and pain and guilt and shame and fear we got to learn to acknowledge these things and see these things in ourselves before hating them in other people and so the invitation for us is to experience peace with god right, to experience forgiveness and reconciliation with God. Peace with God removes those internal barriers to peace. Peace with God, Jesus says, comes through his life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. It comes through his life, through his death. He makes peace, Ephesians 2 says, at the cross. He kills hostility and contempt and shame and guilt and all the things that Keep us separated and divided. That's actually the point of Ephesians chapter two. Not just making a theological point, but he's dealing with the divided church that's dividing over ethnicity and over their covenant acceptance with God. He says, look at the cross. That's where we find peace. And it comes from the resurrection of Jesus who rose to give us power to live new lives. Peace comes from knowing and delighting in the fact that we are God's beloved children, And when we know that peace on the inside, when we know that stillness, that calmness that comes from having our sins forgiven, from having our injustices covered, our alienation removed to be reconciled to the presence of our Father, and to simply sit in his presence and experience his love, then we know peace. That's why Jesus' words are so profound to Peter and the disciples who betrayed him in their last days before he was arrested and murdered he shows up and they're huddled in what fear behind locked doors afraid of the world and jesus shows up and what does he say to them how dare you you you, you crazy sinners i can't believe you betrayed me repent or die What's jesus say when he shows up behind the locked doors shalom peace my peace i give to you my peace I leave with you and become a people of peace. So peace begins internally. It's an internal work that we have to do, not only to come into relationship with God, but to maintain peace with God. It's not a one-time thing where it's like, oh yeah, I did that when I was eight, I walked an aisle, I signed a pledge card, I was confirmed at 13. No, peace with God is an ongoing reality, right? Like it has to start somewhere, but it's an ongoing reality. Reality, And so the next step to being a peacemaker, to dealing with conflict internally, is prayerful reflection. Prayerful reflection. And by this, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the kind of prayer that uses prayer as a shield to actually deal with other people in conflict. Well, I don't have to deal with them, I'll just pray about it. We like to do that, right? I'm praying for peace. What are you actually doing about it? You use God as a shield to avoid people, to avoid hard situations. We blame Satan for everything. Well, the devil, you know, such and such. Yeah, sometimes. But like James said, most of the time, no, it's it's actually you. And you don't need to really pray about that. You just need to kind of own that. But prayerful reflection is this inner work that we have to do so that we learn to shortcut. Our automated ways of showing up for conflict. We have these, again, these learned automatic ways and they're so primal. Again, like how quickly, your last conflict, when it went really, I'm talking the kind that goes really bad, the kind you don't share on social media, the one that's not curated and filtered, but like the one that went really bad last week, on the way to church this morning, last month, last year. How quickly we can revert to the 12-year-old version of ourselves. We have these primal ways of fighting or avoiding fighting, navigating conflict. And and Paul says in Philippians 4, the problem is we're not living in the peace of God now. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Right on the heels of talking about conflict. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And that's what he said. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart's and your mind in Christ Jesus. What Paul is implying there is there is a way of being, even as a Christian, that is anxious. That's not living in the peace of God, that's not allowing the peace of God. The idea here is you're being guarded, you're being protected, it's a military term. Your heart is being protected, your mind's being protected by the peace of God so that you can be a peaceful presence in the world. So the work we must do is reflect on what's happening inside of us. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, same Sermon on the Mount, take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your neighbor's. That's a call to self-examination, self-reflection, to this inner work that we have to do so that we don't condemn others, Jesus says. There's nothing wrong with judging. Judging's not bad. What's wrong, Jesus says, is judgmentalism. It's a condemnation that excludes the other person and consigns them essentially to the hell of our own imagination. And so just let me give you some questions that you might ask when you're in the midst of uh, doing this, this internal work. These are just questions that I've learned, again, this is pulling together all the skills from our Emotionally healthy series kind of into one. How did my family of origin do conflict? You would do well to do some reflection on how you've learned to do conflict. Just a personal testimony. I grew up in a family where conflict was like the Cold War. Now, my parents go to this church. My sisters, they're all watching this service, so I'm going to be as honest as I can be and compassionate. But the way we dealt with conflict is we didn't deal with conflict. And, and there's reasons for that. Both my parents grew up in alcoholic families with abuse and all kinds of things. So I understand now as an adult why certain things happen. But nonetheless, I learned that conflict is something to be avoided. So when there was conflict or things got tense, the temperature began to rise emotionally in the room. Everybody would run to their rooms and hide until things blew over. Could be an hour, could be a day, could be never. And then we all came back together, and we didn't talk about it. Just like, hey, let's move on. My wife, I grew up in a family that was very proactive about conflict. They love to talk about conflict. They love to deal directly with conflict and as the temperature was rising, intimacy was rising. And so you have two people who come into marriage, one wanting to avoid conflict and one very comfortable having hard conversations. And you can imagine what the first couple years were like as we learned to negotiate that, but I learned that it, it's not even something that I thought about. Like when, when, when the temperature began to rise and we were having conflict, And still this happens to this day to a degree. Something happened in my body. You ever felt this? Like if you're a conflict avoider, my body became tight. It was almost as if I couldn't speak. My mouth began to get dry. My heart was pounding. And there was something in me that just said, run away. If I didn't do it physically, emotionally, just run away. Don't, this is danger zone. (laughs) Run away. Uh, 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 You know, like a nuclear meltdown's about to happen. And so I had to learn to reflect on that and to ask those questions and to say, what's normal to me is not normal to her. And so we have to have a conversation about what needs to be shed and what needs to be kept because some of that was good and some of it was bad. Another question you might ask yourself is what am I thinking right now? What am I feeling right now? What am I desiring right now? It's it's our desires, James says, that lead us into conflict. What do I really want? Because what we often say we want is not what we really want. And we have to listen to each other to understand what the other person really values, what they really desire, because they're coming at us with a lot of heat here, but what they really want and what they're really feeling, what they're thinking is often here. And we miss each other, like ships passing in the night. So what is it I'm feeling? Can you name your emotions? I'm feeling anxious. Why? I'm feeling angry. Why? I'm feeling sad right now. I'm feeling lonely right now. I'm feeling frustrated right now. I'm feeling fearful right now. What patterns and triggers do you notice? When you tend to conflict, are there certain circumstances that generally kind of put you in a certain kind of way where you're ready to fight? One of the things I've noticed about myself, a pattern of conflict is when I feel a sense of shame, I feel like I I don't measure up, I'm primed to fight or run away. When I feel incompetent, somebody's questioning my knowledge, my competency, I'm ready to fight. What are your patterns? Maybe it's early in the morning. Maybe it's late at night. Maybe it's when you haven't eaten for a while. Maybe it's, I I don't know what the patterns, but you would do well to do some reflecting on what are the, and I guarantee you'll begin to see patterns in how you do this. And the more you know, the more you can grow. Another question we need to ask ourselves is, can I overlook this? Proverbs says, it's the glory of mankind to overlook an offense. Is this a sin issue, or is this a preference? Is this something that can be truly overlooked? This is a preference that I have, but as we had to learn, there's a million different ways to do Christmas, Thanksgiving, family meals, clean the house. We all have these expectations. So sometimes I have just gotta overlook it. You will save 90% of your conflicts if you will learn to overlook things and release them. So, These are some of the the, the internal things that we need to do. When we do this work, we're able to show up better in conflict. This is 80% of the work, and if you will do this before you ever have the conversation, if you will slow down and take time to process, write these things out, pray through these things, get a trusted friend to talk through these questions with you, you will walk into conflict. Again, 80% of conflict is so much easier or goes away completely because we're able to show up with self-awareness, we're able to show up with compassion, We're able to show up with humility, and I'm able to stay focused on you. That's the key to a good conversation, is that I keep the focus on you. When I haven't done the internal work, unconsciously, I'm focused on me, my anger, my shame, what I need from this conversation, my desires, my values, my frustrations. When I do the internal work, I can move from a place of self-preoccupation and reactivity and rigidity to curiosity and others' focus. Okay, we don't have a ton of time, so I just want to throw these out there for you. What's the process look like then? So how do you actually have that conversation? We've talked a bunch about this through the series, so I'm just going to throw these slides up for you to consider what steps need to be taken to give God the space to help others grow and learn and transform. That's really important. What we're doing in this process is giving God room. That's why good process is helpful. We got to give God space to work. Conflict doesn't get resolved in a conversation. Give God the space to grow them, help them learn, help them transform. That transformation process, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, is a spirit-led, lifelong process. So how do we do that? What does that look like? I mean, I will tell you as, as just very transparently, we have worked harder on this as a staff and elder team over the past couple of years than anything else we've worked on. We have experienced conflict. We have experienced disappointment in relationships with one another. We've even gone gone so far as to write out a grievance policy for how we're gonna do this in writing. Because we found if we don't do this work, things get ugly quickly. And, And we can't model something to the church that we're not practicing ourselves. And I was terrible at it. And it's funny and ironic that God would make me a pastor because most of what I do is conflict resolution and reconciliation. It's, it's interesting, to put me in a church that, that cares about justice and reconciliation as one who's a conflict avoider. Now, before I just put this on the screen, let me just say this. I'm not talking here about domestic violence and abuse and trauma, okay? That, that requires a different thing and so I, what will happen sometimes is abusive husbands will take advantage of this process and they'll say, well, I need to have a one-on-one with my wife before, I'm not talking about that. And if you're in that situation, we want to help you. We have resources. There is a way out. And if you are trapped in that and it's under the guise in an ugly, horrific way of a Christian spirituality, man, we would love to just enter in and help. And we have so much compassion. We have dealt with that time and time again. So I'm not talking about that in this case talking about kind of normal, you know, uh, reconciliation. Let me just say this. The goal of conflict is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, as you've been reconciled to God, you've now been given the ministry of reconciliation. So as those who've been reconciled to God, we have a ministry of reconciliation. The goal of a conflict conversation is reconciliation. It's not winning. It's not being right. It's not vindication And it's not message delivery. I have something I need to get off my chest and you sit there and shut up and listen. It's reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Right here. Restoring and healing process that grows out of God's divine act involving the continual practice of forgiveness, repentance, justice, that transforms broken relationships, broken systems and structures into the way that God intends them to be. Next slide. Starts with a learning conversation. Not message delivery, but a learning conversation. Speaking the truth in love. And those have to be held together, right? Some of us love speaking truth. We don't do it in a loving way. Some of us love people, but we have a hard time speaking truth. We do those together. So this involves listening. As we said a few weeks ago with James, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. I found that structure is really helpful. So when we do conflict resolution and mediation here at SOMA, we actually have a process. We have a template that walks both parties through writing down. Because again, we want to slow down those automatic defenses and responses and we want to actually have them write out what happened. So we can get this story and this story and we can create a shared narrative together. That's one of the most important pieces that people miss. Two different realities, two different narratives. So we want to say, what would an objective third party say is true, what can we agree on? And let's get that agreement as the starting point for conversation. Then what happened? And then what what were the intentions? What did you intend when this behavior happens? And then what was the impact of that? And then what needs to change going forward? And we walk both parties through that and then we show up at the whiteboard and we actually go through and we have a learning conversation. That's how you rebuild trust that's been broken. Both parties participate. It involves listening, speaking, confession. Like I'm amazed at how many Christians don't know how to confess their sins to each other. They don't know how to apologize. I'm talking pastors. I've been in rooms where pastors don't know how to say, I did this and I'm sorry, without blaming or shaming or minimizing. Just a simple thing. We can do this every day with our kids. Like, here's how to apologize. It's not intuitive, by the way. So there should be confession. Confession means homo is the word. Agreeing with God about truth. There should be repentance, turning away from self-centered ways of living and turning towards God and towards one another. There should be forgiveness, extended, right, and asked for. I did this. Will you please forgive me? I know it impacted you this way. Will you forgive me? Is there anything else I need to ask for forgiveness for? Is there anything else that I missed? Do you feel satisfied that we've talked about everything that needs to be uncovered and addressed? There needs to be, and we miss these last two pieces oftentimes, there also needs to be repair, If something was stolen, if something was taken, if someone was violated, there needs to be fair, just compensation and repair. That is a biblical word that we should not as Christians be afraid of. And a lot of the problems we have in our country right now, racially, ethnically, and otherwise, are because we have not practiced repair. If you want an example of this, read the social justice book of the Old Testament, Leviticus. And then there needs to be follow through. You make a commitment to change, and then we follow up on that. How's it going? Did you do what you said you were going to do? And we follow through on that process. That's a learning conversation. We have lots of those. Then the rest of the steps, I'll just throw up on the screen, mediation. If that doesn't work, you invite in a third party, Matthew 18, bring two or three along. Arbitration sometimes If mediation breaks down, arbitration is essentially a binding legal ruling that the church issues, rather than going to court first, again, I'm talking non-criminal things here, but going to court first, 1 Corinthians 6 says, are you as Christians full of the Spirit of God not capable of adjudicating a case between brothers? So there's an investigation, and then there's arbitration. There's a binding ruling that both parties accept. And if that doesn't work, the last place is accountability We go to the elders And we say, this person won't repent, this person won't confess, this person will not deal peacefully with me. And the elders are to step in and tell the church and to call this division and to separate this person from the body. Because that division, a little yeast, works its way through the lump. And there's accountability. Now, we're going to close. I just want to say this. Uh, As as we wrap this up, realistically, not all conflict can be resolved in one conversation or even on this side of heaven. Sometimes reconciliation, full reconciliation is not possible. But working through this process allows release to happen. It allows forgiveness to happen. Again, as one person famously said, when we refuse to forgive, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We must go through this work for the health of our own souls. If we're gonna be healthy people. But just realize sometimes that doesn't happen. Paul and Barnabas separated in ministry in Acts, just had a sharp disagreement and they parted ways. Now, sometime before they died, they got back together. I don't know how that happened. But Romans 12, I love this. It's so practical, so helpful. Paul says, in as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Inasmuch as it depends on you, as much as you can help it, live at peace. And so if you go through this process and there's no reconciliation, what do you do? I mean, minimally, Jesus says this again in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless your enemies. Are we treating our parents that way? Let's just say they are your enemies. Are we treating them that way? Are we blessing them? Are we forgiving them? Are we praying for them? Are we hoping the best for them? Are we rooting for them? That's what it looks like to have a heart that's been transformed by the good news of Jesus. And man, what a brilliant, beautiful picture of the church. A community of peacemakers who know how to show up well in a mature way for conflict and who show the world this is what it looks like to do that Well, if we can't learn these skills in this room with our families, with our roommates, our missional communities, our church, what do we have to offer the world? Nothing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this invitation to peacemaking. It's so hard, and we're so impoverished in our ability to make peace. And our ability to both experience forgiveness and extend forgiveness to others, to live a life of reconciliation and justice is one of the hardest callings as a Christian. And yet this is a way of life for us as believers. You've called us not just to occasional acts of entering into conflict, but peacemaking is a way of life. In a world, as the psalmist says, that cries out for war, that cries out for violence, that cries out for us to dominate and to own the opposite party, in a world that cries out for us to be vengeful and spiteful and hateful and hostile, you invite us to be a people of peace. And in being people of peace, to reflect the heart and the character and the nature and the reality of our Father in heaven. So God, give us this strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.